0: I want to welcome our visitors. Thanks for being here. And for those of you who are here week in and week out, I'm excited for this new series that we're starting. I've been planning it for a while. Um, Bo and Dwayne were asking me how long I expect it to be, and I said, I'm not sure, which is a scary answer. Open-ended. I I, I have at least 12 sermon titles. Um, Not all of them outlined, but sermon titles that I want to touch on. It could be a little longer. Uh, could be a little less, depending on how I tweak some so um, i have I have a huge desire for for our church to grow in the area of discipleship, as i 've talked to people in our church as i 've talked to people outside of our church um, I, I ask them a question and, and try and find out how many people have actually ever been discipled in the faith, meaning What I mean by that is, you've had someone who's older in the Lord take you and teach you, just like Paul outlines in Titus. He says he wants the older men to teach the younger men, the older women to teach the younger women, so on and so forth. And very few people have had that privilege. And yet, in Scripture, that's the norm laid out for the church to be about. So, I I have a huge desire for our church to want to grow. Um, I guess the best way I can describe this series for me is, is when you read 1 Corinthians 3, and Paul tells that church, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and others have built upon it, but let each one be careful how he builds upon it. Give attention to it, he says. I want to be that, and I want to do that for our church. That's why I've tried to be very systematic in the things we put in place first as far as leadership, leadership structures, our statement of faith. Um, Remember, we're not even two years old yet. We're still young. Um, And then I wanted to look at the book of Acts because that is the picture of what was the first church? What did they face? What did they do? But this moves perfectly into discipleship. I want to make sure our foundation is good so that we can build upon it. We are in a building place and state in our church history. Um, so, this morning what we're going to do, you can see the subtitle there, is State of the Church. We're going to do a broad survey of just such foundations, as I quoted out of 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, and the reason I want to do this this morning to set the stage is to see how the church, one, universal, is doing, and secondly, see by self-examination how we're doing in discipleship, okay, uh, it's without a doubt my intention, I'll be up front, to step on your toes this morning, because there are definitely things that are encouraging to me about our church, and I mean Waypoint, our church, but there are certainly things that concern me, and I say that gravely, I say that honestly, there are things that concern me, and I want to see health in every single member, that's my goal. Um, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, when one part of the body is weak or suffers, it affects all. And so I want to see every person coming to waypoint spiritually thriving. But sometimes what we got to do is take a step back and actually see what we're building upon. Because if we're building upon a faulty foundation, we will never thrive. We will never thrive Paul actually took this approach with the Colossians. He said this at the end of chapter 1. He said uh, that I, I warn, our, he said, I, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man. And Paul said that very directly, because the word warning literally means you're putting back into joint that which is dislocated. And then he taught. You see, if something's amiss in your life, as a disciple, it must be put back into joint. It's no use trying to make a dislocated shoulder healthy without putting it back in its socket. You'd do more damage. We get that. It's a spiritual principle too that Paul applies to how he approached churches and building them up. He warns, meaning put it back into joint, and then he taught health. Okay. So the command, we know this verse, Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now we're going to examine this later. Okay, I'm not focusing on this now. I'm simply stating, this is the mandate. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Doesn't get much more clear and simple. What did Jesus leave the church to do? Go make disciples, baptizing them. That's the mandate for all of us. That's not my job solely as a pastor. Certainly it is. It's your job as disciples of Christ as well. That's the command, okay? However, there's a disconnect so often. I think this author, Michael Horton, he wrote a book called The Gospel Commission, Recovering God's Strategy for Making Disciples. And he said this, From where I sit, the church is not so much lazy as it is distracted. Now, I would certainly agree with that. Um, I think a lot of times the church is lazy, just to be honest, spiritually lazy. But I think a lot of what's going on in churches today is distraction. We're going to cover what I believe that is, okay? Okay. So we have the mandate from Christ, make disciples. And yet the reality is the church is distracted from that mandate. Okay. Lifeway, I found this very helpful. They've got a book called Transformation, Transformational Discipleship, which is very good. And in that book, they suggest eight signposts of what a healthy disciple is. These are things that will be a part of a a healthy disciple's life. One, engaging the scriptures. They're in the Word. They obey God and they deny self. That's the principle of the cross. Obedience of faith, serving God and serving others. In fact, the very nature of the Christian life is to give, not to receive. And so if you're not serving, you're not growing. It's that simple. The Christian life cannot be fulfilled by simply receiving. The Christian life flourishes when it pours out. So serving God and serving others Sharing Christ, there's evangelism. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. Exercising faith, that is the one rule Christ places on any follower, you must walk in faith. Seeking God, which is prayer. You have a prayer life. Building relationships, there's the community of faith. And last, living unashamed. Now to that last point, the the man who kind of heads up the research for LifeWay, his name is Scott McConnell, He pointed out that living unashamed, and not only biblical principles state this, but their research has uncovered this, is that several characteristics that best predict being unashamed or someone who would become unashamed includes, one, reading the Bible regularly. So in other words, if you don't want to be ashamed of the gospel, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. First, the power of God under salvation. If that's what you want, get in the word regularly. Not only does scripture say it, their research, he says, affirms that. Other actions to living unashamed, ashamed, and becoming more spiritually mature include sharing with someone how to become a Christian, sharing the gospel with them. Now we're going to look at some statistics here in a second on that. Also, being discipled or Discipling someone else and having a habit of confessing your sin to God. So those are pathways in our study, and I mean our series that we'll certainly consider several of those and focus um, sermons on those aspects of, of discipleship. But I want to ask you to this morning to do a spiritual test on yourself, okay? That's what we're after. If I were to give you a test to gauge your own progress in the disciplines of a disciple as well as your own involvement in evangelism. How do you think you would do? Now, Acts 2.42 is a bedrock verse for me personally. It's been very informative as far as my philosophy of ministry. Peter preaches on Pentecost, 3,000 souls are saved, and immediately following their salvation, guess what they gave themselves to? The apostles' teaching. Fellowship breaking of bread, and the prayers. That was the bedrock ABCs of what they now became as a disciple. They got in the Word of God. They gave themselves to fellowship. They sought Christian fellowship. Breaking of bread, the communion meal, the love feast, and prayer characterized the basic disciplines of a disciple. Now, thats it doesn't get any more basic than those disciplines. So I want you to ask yourself, how often do you pray? I want you to say it, but be honest. How often do you actually pray? How often do you seek God in His Word? How often have you shared the Gospel with somebody? We're going to look at some of these. Those are just three of the basic disciplines of one who's called a disciple. You can call those the elementary things upon which all else that we seek and are trying to do here at Waypoint is built upon. So needless to say, if the basic disciplines aren't disciplines in your life, it will be extremely difficult for you to grow as a disciple. In fact, I'd say so far, it's impossible for you to grow. These are the basic ABCs of discipleship so to contrast this i want to do look at some statistics okay religious america and prayer this is a survey done by the pew research center and it surveyed thousands and thousands of different faiths people who practice and how often they pray daily weekly monthly and the last column over there if you can't see it says seldom or never okay and I highlighted the ones of interest to me. The first one there, evangelical Protestantism. 79% of evangelicals say they pray daily. That's pretty good. I, I wish it were more. I wish it were more in my life. 79%. However, mainline, mainline Protestants, which is much broader, only 54% pray daily. In contrast, look at Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses say they pray of them pray daily. Mormons, 85% say they pray daily. Okay? How about this? This breaks it down into men and women. Men are on the left. Women are on the right. 41% of men say they pray daily as opposed to 59% of women. But the one that struck me, 64% of men who claim to be Christians say they seldom or never pray. Now get this in your head. Nearly seven out of ten male people who claim to be Christians say they seldom or never pray. You might be feeling convicted and possibly you need to be. Let's look at some Scriptures on this. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy? I desire that in every place the men should pray. And we just saw nearly 7 out of 10 don't. Paul said this also, continue steadfastly in prayer. It's out of Colossians. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 James said that at the bottom. Pray for one another. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power. It's effectual and it's working. Well, what about Jesus on prayer? Jesus said this, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He also said, My house is to be called a house of prayer. That's what should characterize it. Whatever you ask in prayer, He also said, you will receive if you have faith. What a tremendous promise. And then He told them a parable. This is out of Luke 18, verse 1. I didn't cite the parable, but Luke said this. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So you see the numbers. I don't know what your own conscience is testifying about how often you pray, but we certainly see here what the Scripture says we should be doing with prayer. Always! (laughs) Prayer always. In fact, Jesus even taught us how to pray. So you're without excuse. He said this in Matthew, Pray like this, our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, what about the Word? What about the discipline of the Word? This is from Lifeway. I quoted him earlier, Scott McConnell. I know it might be kind of small for you to see, this is among Americans in the Word of God, the Bible. How much have you personally read? Only 11% have said they've read all of it. Only 9% say they've read it more than once. 15% say at least half of it. 30% several passages or short stories. That grieves me. It grieves me to see that. Americans are split over the nature of the Bible, Scott says. Four in ten say it's a book worth reading. Four in ten say that the Bible is worth a book reading. Five percent say the Bible is a book not worth reading. And 19% are unsure. However, a number of reasons keep Americans from reading the Bible, he says, according to LifeWay. One, they don't prioritize it. 27% don't prioritize reading the Bible. 15% say they don't have time. 13% say they've read it enough. Now let these sink in. (laughs) We don't have time for the Word. Oh, I've read it enough. It's not a priority. 9% say they don't see how the Bible relates to them. Now, I take that one personally. That's my job as a pastor. Why is the Bible relevant to you? I want to labor to make it relevant. Only 6% said they don't have a copy. Overall, Americans seem to like the Bible. They have a good attitude about it. However, there's not much urgency to read it. This is the saddest statistic of all, though, for me. Almost 9 out of 10 households, 87% of households own a Bible. And the average household has three. Let's look at what the Bible says. What others have said about it. Job said this, I have counted Your Word as more necessary than My ordinary food. I don't have time. And Job says, oh, I need this more than food. David said this, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law he meditates when? Day and night. And yet, our statistics shed only 11% have even read it one time. Peter said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And here's what Jesus said. Let this sink in. Man cannot live by bread alone. Man cannot live by bread alone. Now, if you're one of the people here who's in those statistics that don't read the Word, you cannot live on bread alone. If you are not in the Word of God, you are not living. I don't know how else to say that. You are not living according to Christ. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus prayed this for you. He prayed this for you. sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And then as we just read, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. about evangelism? How do we do on evangelism? In the past six months, says here up at the top, in the past six months, the question was asked, how many times did you share with someone how to become a Christian? Now, I know this is small. On the left, the largest number there, 55%. The number under that is zero. 55% of evangelical Christians have not shared the Gospel one time in six months. On the far right is 3%. 3% of the people, 3% of evangelical Christians have shared the Gospel 16 or more times. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I want to break this down for you. Here's a statistic before I get break it down a little bit and look at some Scriptures. Okay, so they haven't shared with Christ. What about praying for opportunities to tell other about Jesus? Well, at least that's better. 23% of the people say they at least pray every day for the opportunity to share Christ. <laughs> However, the, the greatest number there at the bottom, 27% say they rarely or never pray for the opportunity to share the Gospel. It's not even a concern of theirs. Not even a concern. Here's what the Scripture says on evangelism. Paul, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And he said this, woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. And then he said this in Colossians, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. What about Jesus on evangelism? Said this in Mark 1. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I've come out. Again in Luke 19, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. What was Jesus' purpose? Very simply to seek and save you. It was a priority for him. Praise God. And then he gives us this command in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now I want to do a thought experiment with you. I started playing with numbers this week. There's 150 million roughly Protestants in the USA. Now we were told 3% shared the gospel, shared the gospel with 16 or more people within six months. That's 4.5 million evangelists. We'll call them evangelists, okay? If we average the 4.5 million evangelists per state, then we get 90,000 evangelists per state. Now, I know this is way skewed, okay? But just bear with me. 90,000 evangelists per state averaged out. Now, there were roughly 384,000 Protestant churches in 2012. That's kind of old, but again, it's just a thought experiment. That averages out to 7,680... Protestant churches in every state. 90,000 evangelists per state, 7,680 churches per state. So on average, this means this. There are 11.71 or nearly 12 people sharing their faith with one person roughly every 10 days in each church. Now let this sink in. 11.71 people per state or per church in every state who shares their faith with at least one person roughly every 10 days. That might sound pretty good to you. Except this, during His ministry, Jesus also started with 12 evangelists total. And they changed the world. (laughs) Pretty crazy to put it in perspective, huh? So let me summarize what these numbers tell me with discipleship. One, we're commanded to make disciples, right? This involves evangelism. And then secondly, what we read in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. That's what discipleship is about. Evangelism and teaching them, training. That's what we're commanded to do. And yet, 55% of those who claim to be Christian haven't even shared their faith one time in six months. Only 3% share their faith once every 10 days. And less than half of regular churchgoers read the Bible regularly. Now, do you see as a pastor what I'm looking at? We've got to change. We've got to change. If I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, do you want God's blessing on your church, on your life? I would expect every single one of you to raise your hand. But with these, do you think God would bless that? when we won't share our faith, we won't even seek Him in His Word, we won't pray, we won't fellowship. So, what does spiritual distraction lead to? If the command to the church is to make disciples, that involves evangelism and discipleship, and we're just not doing it. We're just not doing it. One distraction leads to first the pursuit of things that we either ought not pursue, or the pursuit of things as as it's, if it's primary when it should be secondary. Okay, let me break that down. So we have we've seen many scriptures that say the basic disciplines of a disciple are prayer, reading the word, fellowship. Right. And the lackluster numbers of people who actually give themselves to that. Let's consider a, a passage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter six. Okay, the pursuit of things that ought not be pursued, and that would be sinful things, okay, carnal things. Paul said it this way in Colossians one: Seek first the things that are what above, not the things that are below. Or it means the pursuit of things is something primary when it should be secondary. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus tells us this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now those things are not sinful things, so that would be the second point. That would be something, pursuing those things as though they were primary when they should be secondary. Food. Clothing, all that stuff is not sinful, yet it's not primary, Jesus said. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes, church, you are. You are of much more value than birds, and yet God sees fit to take care of birds. Will He take care of you? Yes. You don't need to worry about that. Then why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you? Again, yes, He will. Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's primary? Over food? The kingdom of God is primary over food, church. What's primary over what you're going to wear? The kingdom of God is primary over what you should wear. Distraction also leads to the neglect of things that we ought not neglect. This is the reverse the replacement of things that ought not be replaced. This is scary because when we start pursuing things that aren't sinful and it replaces the kingdom of God, what's neglected? Kingdom of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, if you will. Luke chapter 9, verse um, 57, and following. So these were these were people who would follow Christ if they could also pursue what they want. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Man, if I heard that as a pastor, I'd be like, yeah! (laughs) But Jesus has discernment, and He said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. In other words, are you willing to pay the cost of following Me? It's going to be one of my sermon titles, by the way, the terms of discipleship that Jesus laid out. Are you willing to pay the price? Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. There's the invitation. Jesus giving the invitation, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What did we just read in Matthew? Seek first what? The kingdom of God. You know what this man wanted? He wanted his inheritance. He wanted that safety net. That's what's going on here. And Jesus said, no. That's not following Me and it's not faith. You go preach the kingdom. Yet another said, I will follow You, Lord. But let Me first say farewell to those at My home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Those are, those are lines in the sand that Jesus said, not Me. If you want one hand following Christ and one hand pursuing the world, You are not fit. That's what Jesus is saying. So that's what distraction leads to. And Jesus is telling people in discipleship, look, it's all in or all out. That's it. It's very simple. Discipleship is you are in or you are out. You cannot be for me. And yet pursuing money in one instance, he said, because your love will be divided. So ask yourself these questions. What should I be focused on versus what am I actually focused on? We've just answered the first one for you. You should be focused on the kingdom. Are you? What should I spend my time on versus what am I spending my time on? What should I be disciplining myself for versus what am I disciplining myself for? This is getting to what do you spend your time doing? Because... Whether we like it or not, the things that we give our time to is training us in something, for good or bad. It's disciplining us for something. Lastly, where does my passion lay versus where should my passions lay? There's many warnings in the Scripture against being distracted. And they're detrimental. I mean, this... And we use the word distracted in American culture. It's kind of a light word, right? Without consequence. That's not how the scripture uses it. Being distracted spiritually is very detrimental. It shipwrecks your faith, Paul said. Okay. Um, we're not going to go to all these, but I do want you to turn to Hebrews chapter two. We'll look at this one. But as a cross-reference, you can look at uh Romans 15, 1 Timothy 6. In Hebrews chapter 2, however, beginning in verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, right away, when you read that statement, don't you get the sense of like, I better listen. <laughs> That's the intent, right? Pay close attention to what you've heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it the natural tendency is to drift away. So pay close attention. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, many churchgoers, 150 million Protestants, are in church today and neglecting the message they're hearing. Maybe their church isn't preaching it. I don't know. I'm going to assume they all are. 150 million people are neglecting what they hear. How can I say that? Because the numbers I showed you. The word tells us, get in the word. And we're not. The word says, pray all the time. Nah. The word says, Get together in fellowship, in fact, Hebrew says, don't neglect the meeting of t- together, as is the habit of some. I don't have time for that. So how do I know we're neglecting it? The question then is, how shall you escape judgment? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Right? God wants us to know this. The blessing is here. But you know, the writer Hebrews goes on in chapter five and six and he calls them dull of hearing, sluggish. Right? This is what I see the church at. So I'm encouraged by things going on, but guys, I see a lot of us as sluggish. I'm just being honest. I see us as sluggish in many ways. And we can have all the reasons in the world. I don't have time. I da 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 whatever. Okay. To the detriment of your own soul, then. If we don't make the kingdom priority, everything else can be logically justified. I'm not going to try and argue with that. But I'm just saying, we prioritize according to To what the word says. David and Bathsheba is another good example of how an instance of spiritual distraction cost severely, right? I mean, David's kingdom was known as a kingdom of prosperity and peace. After Bathsheba is a kingdom of bloodshed and turmoil. Samson, no one could conquer him. No one could conquer him. He got distracted by a Philistine woman. And you know what happened. Israel, the whole history of Israel. In fact, Israel's still in their spiritual distraction right now. That's Romans 15 reference up there. So then, starting to wind it up. Two churches in Revelation to consider, okay? Because these are churches that Jesus is speaking to. So I take that as Christians. They're churches. The church at Sardis was the church in name only to summarize sardis you could say uh, well let's let's just read this one and then I'll summarize the next one beginning in revelation chapter 3 verse 1 to the angel of the church in sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars i know your works you have the reputation of being alive but you are dead wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now going back to my numbers again, this is why I put the numbers in here, by the way. The basics of being a disciple, prayer, fellowship, the Word, the numbers are terrible. That word complete there, I have not found your works complete, do you know what it means? It means filled up. I would hope, I mean, this is ideal, I know, we're sinful, but I would hope that if if we were surveyed In this church, how often do you pray? Every day, 100%. How often are you in the word? Every day, 100% of you. How often are you gathering together? As often as I possibly can, 100% of you. That's what I would hope. That's what the word your works being filled up means. That's what Jesus' desire is here. Fill up the works of a disciple. Give yourself to them. I have not found them complete. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now there's three people to summarize this at Sardis. One, there was those who were alive in reputation only. Two, there were those who walked with Jesus. I didn't read that. That's verse 4. Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. There's people still in that church who... And they're doing it. Good. Now I want you to notice, Jesus makes a distinction there. If you walk faithfully in a church, even though that church might be dying, yet you're faithful, Jesus sees you. And He's not going to allow these judgments to come upon you. He makes a distinction. He knows this. So there's those who walked with Jesus. And the third group is implied, those who repented from this. They were part of the first group, and they repented. They repented. So, what does waking up mean? What does, when Jesus says, wake up? Well, the problem is they were a shell of a church. They had works, but nothing was fulfilled. It was a shell. It was the motions. Okay. It was religious activity. No power is how Paul said it. They have the appearance of godliness, but no power. Nothing moving. It's just motion. What was the prescription? Wake up. Well, what's that entail? First, Jesus says, remember what you have received and heard. What's that? It's the Gospel. You know where you need to start if you find yourself in this place. If you see yourself in Sardis and you want to change, go back to the Gospel. The basics of the Gospel. It might seem so simple to you, it's the profound mystery of God. And it will radically change where you're at today. Remember what you have heard and received. Keep it. What's that mean? Begin to obey it. If Jesus says, hey, you need to prioritize your life around the kingdom of God, what do you need to start doing? Prioritizing your life around the kingdom. If, if Paul says, hey, pray every time, every day, what do you need to start doing? Pray. If the Bible says, get my word, why? Because you can't live without it. Now get in his word. (laughs) Keep it. Obey it. That's what repentance is. Repentance means you've been convinced one of where you're at and where you need to be, and your mind's been changed. I'm not okay. You know, I, I told you guys I uh, I do weekly volunteering at the pregnancy resource center and counseling with males and couples. And I'm not going to mention a client's name, but it's been a joy to meet with him. Like so many, he comes in there and his life's a mess, and he's he's just. He's depressed. He's sad because it's not what he wanted. And he's done it. I mean, he takes full credit for it. But he doesn't want to stay there. And in doing Bible studies with this, this man, we were getting to, uh, what repentance is. And he was like, man, this is sweet. He didn't know it was repentance. All this change that's happening in him. He's starting to get in the word. He's starting to seek the Lord. He's starting to go to church. He's changing his life, his habits, all these things. The process of repentance is happening in his life and he's loving it. He's enjoying it. I said, do you know what that is biblically? He's like, no. I said, that's what repentance is. He was like, really? I always have this idea of repentance is like fire and brimstone and oh no. No. Repentance is beautiful. One of my sermon titles, by the way, to prep you, is going to be the repenting church. Repentance isn't only for the lost, it's for us. And he was like, man, this is so sweet. I have so much joy in it. I said, I know. Because in repentance, we align our lives with God and there's the sweet spot. There's the sweet spot. That's the prescription for Sardis. Now, I, I, believe many churches in America are Sardis today. They're, they church in name only. What about this church? Ephesus. Go to Revelation chapter two, verse one. Orthodox and yet loveless. So I, we don't, I don't want to take the time to read all this. I summarize it here. This is everything good Jesus said about Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and you found them to be false. You're enduring patiently. That means they're enduring under suffering. They're suffering for the Lord and enduring it patiently. And you're bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary of it. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, you even hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, if you are to read that description, if that were on waypointclovis.com's website, and you're looking for a church home, would you say, man, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of right there? Absolutely. They got it going on. And yet one thing killed this church. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You see, here's the thing, church. I'm not after you simply doing these disciplines mechanically. If I fail in this study to motivate you to love the Lord, I've failed. I don't want to teach you spiritual disciplines apart from a fervent love for Christ. Why? Because it is legalism, it's dead, and it will profit you nothing. You see, Ephesus started all these with a fervent love for Christ. But as they continued, in their hearts they drifted. They kept doing all this stuff, but their hearts drifted of loving the Lord. And the Lord said, that one thing is enough for me to remove your lampstand. And you know what? Historically, He did. He did. So that's the point. We can be orthodox. We can suffer. We can bear up. And yet, if we have nothing, if we don't have love, we're nothing. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? I can have all wisdom. I can have all faith. I can even give my body to be burned as a martyr. And yet, if it's loveless, guess what? Profits me nothing. I get the tension between um, being separating love and truth, right? You don't just want to be characterized as love, 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 love with no standard of truth. I get that. And churches who, who fear love, they hammer orthodoxy. I've been there. I was that. It's not orthodoxy over love, and it's not love over orthodoxy. It's both together. That's the sweet spot. We must be orthodox. We must be doctrinally rich. We must be practicing the disciplines of a disciple. We must be obeying the Lord. That's orthodoxy. But we must do it with love. Otherwise, we're dead. We're dead. And we might as well hang up the keys to Waypoint now. I don't want to be this kind of church. I don't want to be this kind of disciple personally. How do we then if we find ourselves in one of these places? How is a love set ablaze in your heart? I'll end with this. I know you're going to probably going to hate me. Guess where we're going? Back to the book of Acts. <laughs> Go to Acts chapter 3 and I want to end on an encouraging note. And by the way, I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I'm probably going to come back to this passage in our discipleship series. But church, this is what I want to see happening. Begin to happen. You Remember in Acts 3, uh, Peter healing the lame beggar. Remember this? This man was born lame. He was crippled. From birth, 40 years of his life, he was crippled. He depended on people to carry him on his mat to the temple so he could beg for money, so that he could buy food and eat. And he did that every day for 40 years. Do you think he knew what it was like to be crippled? The pains, the frustrations, the longing to be whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, he sees Peter and John, just to summarize it. He says, hey, got some change? And Peter says, no. Why? Because money, even though that's what he was after just to survive, giving that man money would have kept him in his lameness. Wouldn't it? Do you realize, I want to make an application for you here. That's what many people do with church. Their, their lives are a mess. It's not what they want. So what do they do? Oh, they start going to church. And it's like the beggar who's just asking for money, and yet he stays in his lameness. Church won't change you, guys. Doing spiritual disciplines won't change you. What changed this man? What did he need? He needed to be healed from his lameness. That's what it was. And the only thing that could do that was Jesus Christ. He needed to be connected to the power of God. And that's what church needs today. We meet together and we go through the motions. What we need as a church is to be connected to Jesus. How do we do that? Seek Him in His Word. Pray. Fellowship. Serve. Share the Gospel. That's how it happens. What you need, church, is a testimony. You see, so many people are lackluster in their walk because they're not excited about God. I want to read to you when this man was healed. So, Peter and John are just going to a prayer meeting. They're going to the temple to pray. <laughs> they were seeking first the kingdom. They saw this man. They served, evangelized him, healed him. This man jumps up with legs made whole. And that prayer meeting changed into a flat out revival. I want you to see this with me. Verse 8 or verse 7 of chapter three, he, as Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So their prayer went from prayer to praise, and their praise went from praise to revival. Because everyone's looking at this lame beggar saying, what happened to you? You're different. And he praised God. You know why I think people don't share the Gospel? Because what Christ has done for you hasn't truly set in yet. But I'll tell you this. When you're excited about being healed from your spiritual lameness, you'll praise Him when you feel the weight of your life and that you've maybe, like this man, been spiritually lame for 40 years and you say, today's the day I'm connecting to Christ, then you'll begin to praise with a heart full of love. And you won't be asked to come to Bible study. You'll be waiting on the preacher to open the door. You won't be asked to pray you'll long for it you see the difference this man went in the temple praising God four thousand five thousand people see him Peter preaches boom they become disciples why because that one man was connected to the power of God do you want to change do you want to be a disciple watch what it does to your family and friends watch what it does to your kids Maybe you have conviction in your life saying, say, man, I've squandered a lot of years. I've been spiritually lame for a long time. Hey, you know what the principle of grace teaches me in Scripture? Your past does not dictate your future. You get that? Maybe you've been the spiritually lame beggar. You don't have to be anymore. That's discipleship. Did I step on any toes? I want you to know, church, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Why? He's got so much more for you. He wants us to flourish. But if we can't get even the ABC's of discipleship down, we won't. So what do we do? We humble ourselves. We confess where we're at. By the way, I was talking to my mom about this yesterday. Confession, all that means is you agree with God. You're not disclosing something He doesn't know. The word literally means you agree with Him. So God's saying, hey, you need healing in this part of your life. You're spiritually lame. And you say, you're right, God. I do. You've just confessed. You've aligned your heart with His, and you say, here I am. Change me. That's what discipleship's all about right there. (laughs) <laughs> one who comes to the Lord and says, Lord, use me, shape me, mold me, do what you will with me, I'm yours. That's what the cross and His resurrection makes possible. So if you want to continue in spiritual lameness, by all means, go ahead. I hope you don't. I hope every one of us is not satisfied with where we're at today. That's my hope. Let me finish with the Scripture, okay? Paul said this in Philippians 2. Or Philippians 3, sorry. He says, Not that I've already obtained or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Paul had a testimony. He says this Christ made me his own. That's his testimony. Why am I so passionate about pursuing the Lord? Why do I press on to make this gift of salvation fully manifest? Because Christ has made me His. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own yet. But one thing I do. Now here's the formula for you, church. If you're under conviction this morning, I'm not taking away the conviction. That's good. But here's how you deal with your conviction. Forget what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's what we need. Maybe you've not been who you should be as a disciple. Maybe you've neglected the spiritual disciplines and your spiritual life is cold, dry, whatever. Forget what lies behind and start putting both hands to the plow and going forward. Now, that's all I'll say, but there's great hope in this. The Lord is with those who hear Him. Every church he criticized in Revelation said, hey, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Repent. I'll heal you. That's that's what I'm after. Why did I want to do this lesson first? Because if we don't start confessing now, all these lessons on discipleship are not going to do a thing for us. I want you to take some time here and go before the Lord. Confess what you need to confess. Prostrate yourself. And lay low before the Lord in your heart. And then we're going to sing one last song. So take some time, please. Father God, we want to lay ourselves low in our heart. We confess, Lord, we are not who we should be. We've neglected our duties as disciples. We neglect the very basic disciplines of even what a disciple is. We've neglected duties of what we should be as parents, as children. And Father, we just humbly petition You to not forsake us as David said in the song. Come to us, Lord, and revive us. Come to us and heal us. Come to us, convict us, purge us, cleanse us as David prayed. Father, that light may fill us. That truth may fill us. That Your life may fill us now. Father, that it would capture our heart and squeeze out every other desire that might be competing for it. Because Father, we see what great a price You paid to make all that possible. Your death on the cross was violent. It was extreme and needed. And there was no other way. And yet the triumphal shout was the grave has been overcome. Because death could not hold you. It had no claim on you. It had to release you. You live forevermore. You make intercession for us. You plead before the Father because of our shortcomings. And You provide Your Spirit in abundance for our power. Father, may we during this discipleship series truly come in to understand what You have done and made available to us and for us. That our lives may not be characterized by nominalism anymore. That we might be filled by the power of God that we might be a spectacle, as Paul said, in the world, but a spectacle that draws people to say, what do you have? Because I want it. Just like that lame beggar did. He was connected to the power of God, the name Jesus Christ. Father, cause us to be a confessing and repenting church this week. Cause us... Cause a longing in our hearts for more than what we have. A stirring deep in our soul, Lord, that is not satisfied. Father, I fear for those who are satisfied and just complacent. After hearing the Word, I don't know what else to do or say to them. But Father, I pray that You turn us and transform us Fill us with joy. Fill us with love for your presence, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray.